Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. All right, good morning, church. Good morning. Happy New Year. So, as some of you may or may not know, we're going to be starting a new series that will carry through all of 2018. And the name of the series is The Bible Made Ridiculously Simple. When I was in medical school, there was a book called Microbiology Made Ridiculously Simple. And it made these very strange and foreign scientific concepts very relatable and very accessible and it made big ideas very very plain so that's the point of this series to basically make the bible what may seem big and complicated very simple and accessible and because 2018 will be a year of transformation the fuel for that transformation will be our return to the Word, our return through the Scriptures. So as we as a church read through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation in 2018, this series will be a guide for you to make things plain and simple. So at the end of today's lesson, the Bible made ridiculously simple the introduction. You'll not only have a clear idea of what the Bible is, you'll also know how to navigate through it and what the Bible means. Now, what I'm going to pass around now are the actual formal Bible study plans that we're going to be using in 2018. It's from our fellow brothers and sisters at uh, BibleClassMaterial.com. And this uh, reading program basically assumes that you'll be reading the Word five days a week. So if you miss a day here and there, it gives you some breathing room. So everyone take one and pass it around. Okay, so in today's lesson, we're going to answer seven crucial questions. And the first question we're going to answer is, what is the Bible? And here's the answer. The Bible is the self-revelation of God to humanity, the self-revelation of God to humanity. God basically takes the initiative in and of himself to reveal himself to us, to reveal himself to humankind. And in that revelation, the Bible makes a theological statement. Theological means about God. And in that theological statement, God tells us who he is, God tells us what he has done through Christ, and God also tells us how we, as his children, can have a relationship with him. God didn't have to reveal himself. God could have, so to speak, said it and forget it. He could have made the world then taken a step back. But by his grace, he actually chose to reveal himself to us through the pages of Holy Scripture. Now, God particularly reveals himself in the Word. There is no other place on planet Earth when you can read about the self-revelation of God to us. So you can't know God by experience. You can't know God by any other means other than his self-revelation in the Bible. 
So the reasonable question then a person can ask is not, should I bother with God? The more rational question to ask is now, who is this God who has bothered to reveal himself to us? And because God has revealed himself to us, he has made our lives easy because we don't have to find God because he has already found us. As Francis Schaeffer once wrote, God is there and he is not silent. Now, as I said, the Bible gives us theological meaning, understanding about God. So God, the Bible never claims to have a complete totality of all truth. What the Bible is, it's ultimate truth. It's capital T truth. So there are sources of truth outside of the Bible. I say all the time, when I learned how to take out someone's appendix, I never read the Old Testament because there are sources of truth outside of the Bible. The Bible is just God's revealed particular truth that gives us theological meaning about who God is and what he has done for us through Christ. So, what is the Bible? It is the revelation of who God is. And when we read the Bible, we find out that God is personal. He's someone who reveals himself to us. We find out that God is self-existent, meaning that he exists in a way different than you and I. Everyone here, we have a manner of being that's dependent on other stuff. We need oxygen to breathe. We need food to eat. We need water to drink. But God by himself is self-existent. He exists independent of everything else. God is also a trinity. He's one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of whom are equally and eternally God. God is also moral. He's someone who's ultimately concerned with right and wrong. He's also concerned with truth, what is right, and also what is just. It would be one thing if God just revealed himself in the Bible, but God is also someone who wants to be known and wants to have a relationship. So this revelation isn't just something in the head, it's actually a personable individual whom we can commune with and have an established relationship with. What is the Bible? It's the revelation of what God has done through Christ. And the ultimate revelation of what God has done through us is through his son, Jesus Christ. God also reveals himself to us freely. God reveals himself to us, and now human beings are free to either read and accept that revelation or to reject it. The Bible is also God's special revelation to us. So there's something called natural revelation, and then there's special revelation. Natural revelation means that God reveals himself in nature. For example, you can look in a microscope and look in a cell and see evidence of complexity. You can see evidence of design. You can look at nature and say, wow, that is majestic, that is glorious. Clearly, this was made by someone divine. And someone can get a sense that there's a God somewhere out there. But in God's natural revelation, you'll never know, for example, that Jesus lived and died on a cross. That's only revealed in the special revelation of God's word, the Bible. So in natural revelation in nature, God whispers to us. But in special revelation in the Bible, God speaks clearly and plainly. 
The word Bible itself comes from a Greek word, biblia, which means book. But because the Bible is God's revelation to us, the Bible is more than a book. The Bible is actually the mind of God revealing himself to us, right? When Shakespeare wrote Macbeth or when Shakespeare wrote Othello, that was the mind of Shakespeare revealing what was in his head to humanity to entertain us. What the Bible actually is, as Paul says in Corinthians, it's the mind of God. It's an omniscient, divine, omnipotent God revealing himself through words in the pages of Holy Scripture. So when we read the Bible, we not only get to know who our Lord is, we can get to know the mind of God. That doesn't mean we become super smart and divine, but it actually means we have access to the thoughts and will of our manufacturer, the thoughts and will of the person who actually orchestrated and made all of our reality. This is why God, for example, didn't reveal himself to us in a song or a movie, right? Because the mind of God reveals his word, and that's meant to be processed and interpreted by us human beings who actually have minds. So we can read it, we can hear the public reading of scripture, and actually interpret God's revealed word from his mind with our own minds. So now that we have a clear idea of what the Bible is, it now becomes clear as to why we should read the Bible. Because the Bible is more than just a book. It's the greatest natural thing that has ever existed. It is God-breathed divine words of Holy Scripture. And the key to growth in the Christian walk, the way that we go from uh, little children to young men to fathers, the way that we grow from Christian infancy to maturity is by the fuel found only and exclusively in the Word of God. So if you want to be blessed, if you want to be prosperous, if you want to grow your faith, if you want to actually exhibit the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the only way that can be done is through the revealed Word of God. So that's the first question. What is the Bible? The second question is now, why should you trust the Bible? Why should you trust the Bible? And the answer is because it is the Word of God. Whenever my mother calls me, she opens up with the same line, Hi, darling, it's mummy. Same line. Whenever I hear those words, I know that is Audrey Sadafel speaking to me because I recognize her voice and I recognize the precise intonation. I never have to look at my phone and look at the caller ID and say, who is this calling me? Because I recognize a voice that's familiar to me. In the same way, when uh, Jesus calls us his sheep, so when as we, the sheep, hear the voice of our shepherd, it's something familiar to us. It's something that we recognize. So we as God's children who have been awakened by his power to the voice of our Father, know in our consciousness this is the voice of our loving God speaking to us. So why should you trust the Bible? Because it is the word of God. But you never have to accept that on blind faith because there are both internal proofs and external proofs that validate the Bible as the Word of God. So there are internal proofs. For example, 
the Bible makes scientific claims that were known thousands of years before science ever discovered it. In Job, for example, it says the earth is suspended, free-floating in space, and it makes that claim 2,000 years before astronomy was ever a field of study. The, the Bible makes historical claims which archaeology uncovers. The Bible also has its most powerful internal evidence, which is prophecy. What that means is the Bible will predict in precise accuracy events that will happen hundreds and thousands of years in the future with uh, exacting accuracy. Like, for example, in Ezekiel 26, he prophesies that the city of Tyre would fall, and he also says there are seven specific events that would happen with the fall, and they did. In Isaiah 13, he prophesies that the city of Babylon would fall, and it did. In Psalm 22, that David predicts that Jesus would be crucified before crucifixion even existed. And then in Micah, for example, he prophesizes 700 years before Christ was born that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And now when statisticians and mathematicians begin calculating what are the odds of all of these things happening, you get crazy odds like 1 in 400 million or 1 in 500 billion, and that's just for one prophecy. So when you take the cumulative sum of the hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that the Bible clearly makes, it's evidently obvious that this is not mere chance. This comes from the mind of someone who knows events will happen before they actually come to pass. Why should you trust the Bible? Because it's self-attesting. It says it is the Word of God. And it says that because it doesn't need to appeal to any other form of authority for its power. If it did have to do that, it wouldn't be the Word of God. The Bible is also inerrant, meaning that it's incapable of lying. And the Westminster Confession we recently went through explains all of that in detail. You should trust the Bible because the Bible is also sufficient and it's complete, meaning that the Bible never needs an update. It never needs a patch. What's been revealed to us in the Bible in its totality is sufficient and complete for our Christian walk, and it's reliable because no one ever needs to add anything to it. That is why in the last chapter of the Bible, Jesus specifically says, do not take away and do not add to what is already perfect, complete, and settled in heaven, or else God will add the plagues upon your head. Those are just the internal proofs. Now there are also external proofs that the Bible is trustworthy in the Word of God. So let's take a step back. Let's say you're a skeptic and you say, I don't believe this Bible stuff, right? And you just say, the Bible is just words of mere men. That's your starting point, right? When you begin to actually analyze the facts, what you'll find is that when historians use tests to validate something as being historically reliable, particularly when it comes to the New Testament, the Bible is a historically reliable document. Jesus, for example, is the most well-documented figure in the history of the world. 
So if you ever meet someone who says, I don't believe Jesus existed, the next question is, have you taken your medication this morning? Because if someone denies that Jesus existed, they have to deny everyone else that ever lived because he's so well documented, right? So external proofs. You begin with the Bible being uh, historically reliable. Then what does that historically reliable document tell us? that these historically reliable figures, particularly Jesus, did miracles, right? And the Bible isn't the only source that tells us that. The Jewish Talmud, for example, and as you know already, the Jews of the time didn't like Christ, which means their documentation is hostile. They didn't like Jesus. But even they say that Jesus did miracles. They never deny that happened. They just say that the source of Christ's power was satanic. So they, they confirm for us that these miracles really did happen. And what do these miracles prove? That this guy, Jesus, really is God because he did what only God could do. He had power over matter, changing water into wine. He had power over nature, walking on water. And he had power over the ultimate thing, life itself, in raising three people from the dead, and then he himself raising from the dead. So you begin with the Bible just being word of men, which validates miracles did happen. The miracles validate Jesus as who he says he is, the Son of God. And what does now Jesus say? Jesus now turns around at the entire canon of Scripture and says, yes, this is the word of God. So you can begin as a skeptic, not even wanting to believe in Jesus, but as you go through this logically and rationally, you end up with the reasonable conclusion that the Bible is the Word of God. So that's question number two, why should you trust the Bible? Question number three, who wrote the Bible? Who wrote the Bible? And here's the answer. God wrote the Bible by inspiration. This process involved the use of human instruments. So, if a person says, God wrote the Bible, and another person says, men wrote the Bible, they are both right. Now, let's explain this. This is very, very important now. So, God wrote the Bible by inspiration. So, the fancy word for God putting his words into the mouth of a prophet is inspiration. And when we talk about who wrote the Bible as a whole, we say it was done by verbal, plenary inspiration. Verbal means word, plenary means all. So verbal, plenary inspiration means every word of the Bible is inspired by God. Every word has been placed into the mouth of a prophet to speak, or every word has been placed into the mind of a writer to record. The validation from this comes from 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, All scripture is inspired by God. Our English word inspired comes from a Greek word, theonoustos, which is two words meaning God-breathed. So 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All of scripture... Everything from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is inspired or God-breathed. So in the same way that God breathed the universe into existence, and by his breath he said, let there be light, God also breathed out 
all the words on the pages of Holy Scripture. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture, meaning the totality of the canon, and Scripture is what is inspired. So it wasn't the writers themselves that were inspired, it's the Scripture which was subsequently recorded. So this is a crucial understanding. You had Bible authors who literally had a pen in their hand and wrote the words on paper. They were the instruments. But the words that were produced, that is what was inspired. So the writings were inspired, but the writers weren't. Therefore, the Bible is not words of men. It is the inspired, inerrant word of God. Everyone got that? Because that's critically important. Okay. So, God wrote the Bible by inspiration. Now, why did God do that? Couldn't God have done like he did with the Ten Commandments and used his finger just to write the entire Bible on stone? Could he have done that? And the answer is, of course he could have. Why didn't he? That's an excellent question, and that is well above my pay grade. That is something that God never reveals to us. All we do know is that in his divine wisdom, this is the route by which he chose to inspire his word. Verbal, plenary inspiration. So let's make sure we're clear now. Inspiration is God being intimately involved in his creation. So what he did know is every Bible author, before they were born, he created their personalities, he, he allowed them to go through certain experiences, and he shaped them in particular and unique ways so that they were purposefully designed vessels to transcribe his words. God both formed the personality of the writers and made them into the men he wanted them to be. Inspiration means that God then selected precise words out of each man's life, experiences, vocabulary, and emotions. So that's what inspiration is. Inspiration is not men inhaling God fumes and then putting a pen to paper. Inspiration is not a high level of human achievement. Inspiration is not a personal experience. So some person can't read the Bible and then say, I got inspired by the word. That's not what it is. Inspiration was not only in the thoughts of the writers, so the, the writers who put their pen to paper were not at liberty to say what they wanted to say. As David says in 2 Samuel 23, 2, the spirit of the Lord spoke to me and his word was on my tongue. As 1 Corinthians 2.13 says, we speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. 2 Peter 1, 20-21 says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So that's the third question, who wrote the Bible? Here's the fourth question. What does the Bible contain? Answer. The Bible contains 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New. The Old Testament contains 
what happened from creation to what happens about 400 years before the coming of Christ. The New Testament contains everything that happened during the birth of Christ and roughly speaking in the next 30 or 40 years. In a nutshell, what the Bible contains is the drama of redemption. What do I mean by that? There are only four chapters in the Bible where everything is as it should be. The first two chapters and the last two. Genesis 1 to 2, Revelation 21 and 22. Everything in between depicts a fallen, broken world and God working in and through reality to bring what was perfect, what was paradise, what was sinless, all the way back to what is ideal in paradise. So what the Bible contains is the drama. Is God working in and through human history? He's using human instruments, and he's working through his chosen people to restore, to redeem, and to reconcile all of creation back to how it ought to be. What does the Bible contain? The Bible contains the power of God's word. The Bible is the only book that reads you. You don't read the Bible. The Bible is the only book that reads you. It basically acts as a mirror and exposes the human condition for what it truly is. It's something that actually penetrates the depth of your being because it doesn't return back to God void. It actually lets you know that there is something greater than our material reality, that there is a spiritual God that oversees all of this world, and it gives you the spiritual diagnosis of sin. And it basically says that we all are spiritual patients suffering from a certain condition. And the great high priest, Jesus, is the the doctor who has the spiritual medicine that leads us and guides us to redemption and reconciliation. The Bible contains the power of God's word, and that power transforms you from the inside out so that your minds, your thoughts, your emotions, your behaviors, your worldview, your relationships, your entire way of viewing the world changes upon reading the fuel of God's word. The Bible contains the power of God's word which tells us that since the beginning of time there has always been a constant death rate, one per one person. It tells us that no human being will ever get out of life alive. It tells us that this material world in which we live is finite, but a mere reflection of something bigger and greater, and there's something grander than all of us in the spiritual realm. Next question is number five. What is the big idea of the Bible? What is the big idea of the Bible? And here's the answer. The big idea of the Bible is the story of God redeeming his chosen people for his glory. The big idea of the Bible is the story of God redeeming his chosen people for his glory. In a book by John MacArthur, he summarizes the big idea of the Bible in two sentences. He says, quote, God for his own glory has chosen to create and gather to himself a group of people to be the subjects of his eternal kingdom, to praise, honor, and serve him forever, and through whom he will display his wisdom, power, mercy, grace, and glory. To gather his chosen ones, God must redeem them from sin. End quote. 
So that's the big idea of the Bible. And whenever we begin reading the chapters and moving through Genesis to Revelation, any scripture, any story, any event that you read in the Bible is going to fall under one of five major themes. So again, the big idea of the Bible is God redeeming his chosen people for his glory. That's the big idea. As subheadings under that, there are five main themes throughout the entire Bible. The first theme is who God is, his nature, his holiness, his justice, his truth. The second theme is the curse for sin and disobedience. The third theme is the blessing for faith and obedience. The fourth theme is God acting as a savior and the sacrifice for sin. And the fifth theme is the coming kingdom of God. So no matter where you are in the Bible, whatever it is you're reading will either touch upon one of those themes or many of them. Question number six. What is the big story of the Bible? What is the big story of the Bible? And the big story of the Bible is the Bible depicts the real-life drama about a devoted God who relentlessly loves his children. If we take a step back and look at the grand arc of the Bible story, Throughout the entire drama of redemption in the story of the Bible, there's a good guy that's always God. And then there's a bad guy, which is always people, time and time again. God is always the good guy. He's gracious. He's loving. He's patient. He's kind. He's true. He's just. He's holy. He's righteous. He always wants the best for his children. But then the bad guy in the story is always humankind. They're children who are stubborn, they're ungrateful, they don't want to listen to reason, and they're always doing things that turn away from God and run as far away from him as possible. In the big story of the Bible, we find out that our story began in the beginning, but that was our beginning because God never had a beginning. He existed from eternity past to eternity future and is without beginning and is without end. And before he ever said, let there be light, he actually knew everything that would happen from then on until the future because that's just how powerful the love of God is. He could say yes to creation knowing that his creation, many, would say no to him. So the story then begins in a garden. It begins in paradise where Adam and Eve were put in the Garden of Eden. And they were given freedom. They were given liberty with the only restriction that they ought not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But then Adam and Eve one day said, let's see what life is like outside of the will of God. And they tried to live independently of the Creator. And that's when the first sin happened. That's when they revolted against God. But God, he could have ended humanity right then and there, but he didn't because he refuses to leave creation alone. So instead, he exiled them. That was the penalty for disobedience, and he left them with a promise that one day there'll be a savior, there'll be a deliverer. Fast forward hundreds and hundreds of years, now God's people, the Israelites, he frees them from bondage, and he puts them back in a figurative garden, in a figurative paradise, 
and he says, okay, guys, these are the stipulations. You uh, ought to execute faith and obedience, but if you execute sin and disobedience, there'll be a penalty. Then for hundreds and hundreds of years, the people refused to listen to reason. This was God revealing to us. He was showing us that if we have a, a method of salvation based on human effort or following laws, it's not going to work. History proved that. So time and time again, the people refused to listen to reason, and God warned them and warned them, and they didn't obey their Lord. And as a result, God could have ended the history of humanity right there, but he didn't. Instead, he exiled his people and said, okay, soon at some point in the future, the Messiah, the Son, the Deliverer who will come, who will finally deliver my people from bondage. And once again, it was only the grace or the love of God that could explain him not giving up on his people. And then God took the form of a human being and he incarnated as flesh in Jesus Christ, the one who is fully God and fully man in one person. He's someone who walked among us, who talked among us, he ate with us, and he being the God-man showed us what it meant to be divine. And this was God actually piercing the veil of reality, intimately interacting with us. And even though now, just like it was in the garden, God was now walking among us. But what did humanity choose to do? Just like it was in the Garden of Eden, they said, God, we don't want you here anymore. And they crucified Jesus. And they put him on a cross. And the cross had to happen because as it was in the garden, God being holy can never say never mind to sin. He can never brush it away. And what Jesus did on the cross, he basically took an infinite amount of judgment that was earned by all human beings forever. And that infinite amount of judgment was condensed into a finite moment so the penalty of sin could be paid forever. And Jesus had to be a God and a man in one person because God couldn't die to pay the penalty for sin, but, but a, a mere man could never bear the full wrath of God, but a God-man could. And on the cross, Jesus executed what's called penal substitutionary atonement. That's a fancy word. That basically means everyone owed God a debt, and Jesus basically paid it. So Jesus was crucified. He died. And then three days later, he resurrected. His body actually rose from the dead. And that was God's grand miracle, his grand proof that he will not leave his creation alone. And that was the sign to all of humanity that this is the deliverer, this is the mediator, the God-man Jesus is the one who will save us from the depths of sin and lead us to new life, a resurrected, reborn life in Jesus Christ. And because Christ was the only one to have paid for our sins and live, God was also showing us Christ is the only and the exclusive way. And the disciples that Jesus had realized the power, realized this was God walking among us. So after Jesus went back to heaven, 
the disciples realize this is a story that we cannot keep to ourselves. We have to tell somebody about it. And they went throughout the entire world preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is where the story, to a degree, meets us in the present because the Bible ends by saying the story isn't over because at some point well into the future, the king will return. He came in lowliness, but he will come back as the king of kings and lord of lords, and that paradise that once existed in the beginning will be restored and redeemed in the end. And when we zoom out and take a look at the grand arc of the Bible, we realize that from the very beginning, God is not fair. Because if God was fair, our story would, and we got what we deserved, our story would have ended in the beginning. But God is not fair. We are saved by grace through faith. And him not being fair means he did give us what we did not deserve and did not give us what we do deserve. Now that we know what the big story of the Bible is, we realize that the big story of the Bible is a big deal. It's not a matter of just life and death. It's a matter of eternal life and death. So what the Bible contains is not a game because everything matters. It changes everything forever. So now, with that understanding, with that frame of mind in our heads, we now get to our final question, which is, how should you study the Bible? And here's the answer. You should study the Bible with purpose, with effort, and a plan. So you study the Bible with purpose, realizing that it takes the Holy Spirit to impart understanding. So a natural man cannot open the pages of Scripture and expect to get it by him or herself. We have our eyes on the page while also having our eyes on God, realizing there are certain truths which are only spiritually discerned. So as we are raised to new life by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is also the one who illuminates us who opens our eyes and opens our minds, actually speaking to us as we hear the voice of our Father and actually get what the words of Scripture contained. Because without the Spirit, what the Bible is, is just another book. So we read the Bible with purpose. We also read it with effort. This is the crucial point. This is why everyone now has the Bible study plan for 2018. So if you haven't made an earnest, dedicated effort to read the Bible in a while, 2018 will be the year when we as a communal group read through the Bible from start to finish. And the reason why I like this Bible plan so much is that, as I said, it assumes you're only going to be reading the Bible five days a week. So if you miss a day here and there, that's okay. And the plan that um, exists in front of you, it combines Old and New Testament together. So you'll get a taste of old and new from the very beginning. And within the first two weeks of you reading, you would have gone through the book of Mark. So you have some Genesis and Jesus from the, uh, the very, very start. The reason why Christians in America today 
suffer from spiritual malnourishment is because they have a spiritual diet of junk food. They don't uh, digest and consume things that's actually founded in the Word of God. So everything else is irrelevant. Everything else is just window dressing. So we're going to study the Bible with effort, and we have the Bible study plan in front of us now. Last point is this. You have to decide on a Bible version. Now, the best language to read the Bible in is the original language, which means Hebrew for the Old Testament, Greek for the New Testament. That is well beyond many individuals. So seeing as how most people only speak and read English, here is my personal recommendation for the top three versions. One ESV, two NASB, three New King James Version. Now why do I say that? ESV, NASB, New King James Version. Because when you begin looking at the Hebrew and the Greek, you realize that you want to be as literal as possible or as faithful to what the word originally says. And as a result, those three versions do the best job of translating word for word. They're called literal translations. There are other translations, for example, it's called functional equivalents. An example of this would be the NIV or the New Living Translation. In some instances, they do a good job. But in sacrificing a precise literal translation, they may miss an idea here and there. So if your goal is to translate a thought, you may be missing precise words, which is why I say, again, there is no perfect English translation. The only perfect translation is the original language. But considering that admission, it's ESV, NASB, New King James Version. Now, final point of the morning is this. Whenever you're reading the Bible, there will be a point in time where you have to begin interpreting or understanding what the text actually means. And there is one principle that everyone has to follow. And that principle is the whole interprets the part. The whole interprets the part, meaning all of Scripture the totality of the Bible is inspired by God, which means everything that God says interprets the minutia that God says. So you can never take one verse and use that as a guide for life or take one verse and allow that one verse to trump or supplant everything else that God says. The whole of Scripture, with a capital S, has to interpret one tiny scripture with a lowercase s. And what happens is that whenever you consider one passage, one verse, or one doctrine in the consideration of the whole, you're now allowing everything that God says to interpret everything else. If there ever was a formula someone could follow that leads to heresy or false doctrine, it's allowing the part to interpret the whole and allowing one thing that God says in one particular place, in one particular time, to 
fly over and supplant everything else that he says. So when it comes to Bible interpretation, key principle, the whole interprets the part. And you also have to consider as well the context in which something was said. The Bible contains history, it contains prophecy, it contains poetry. So when you read in context, you realize that reading a passage about history, for example, is going to be interpreted differently than reading a prophecy or reading a poem which will be figurative. So that's the introduction. The Bible made ridiculously simple. The plan is probably one or two Sundays a month during Sunday school to go through big ideas. Next week, we're going to go through Genesis chapters 1 through 11 and one session a month through the entire year to go through the entire canon of Scripture. So with that said, any questions? All the elect are chosen. Well, human beings will call themselves a lot of things. But ultimately, what determines whether you're chosen or not isn't the will of human beings. It doesn't matter who your mother is. It doesn't matter who your father is. It doesn't matter what your genealogy is. We are elect as the function of a sovereign God. And that's actually a great question because the whole idea that I am chosen as a function of who my mother is or who my father is actually makes God to be a servant. That actually means you can tell God, if I have a child with a particular individual, now my child is chosen, which is, that doesn't even make logical sense. So I see what you're saying, and it's a perfectly logical question, but election has to do with the sovereign choice of a sovereign God. He and he alone knows who's chosen or not. In Exodus, before God reveals the Ten Commandments, he basically explains to Moses that he chose the Israelites to be um, a priest, to be an example to the world. Now, as we all know, they were not an ideal example, but God always chooses that which is lowly to emulate the proud. In the time of history, when God chose the Israelites, they were some of the weakest, some of the most powerless, some of the lacking, the most lacking political power people you could find. So he purposefully chose people that had zero worldly power and basically did all these miraculous works in the drama of redemption to reveal his sovereign power. It all points back to the sovereignty and power of God and the powerlessness of people. For your free yearly Bible reading schedule, visit BibleClassMaterial.com. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.